The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. I just want to say that I don't think Zelensky has changed Ukraine. He amplified, uh, he mirrored what was already there in his time as an actor and comedian. He tried to show the realities and positions of ordinary Ukrainians as they saw them themselves. And then he then amplifies that and emphasizes that as a Ukrainian. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. It's been almost a year since Russia launched its full-scale invasion against Ukraine. In the first few months, Russia seized significant Ukrainian territory. But the tide eventually began to turn, and the momentum now clearly favors Ukraine. Many credit their president, Volodymyr Zelensky, for his leadership during a time of crisis. But this assessment fails to appreciate the resolve of everyday, ordinary Ukrainian citizens. Still, Zelensky has marked a change in Ukrainian politics. Olga Onuk and Henry Hale call this the Zelensky effect. They argue Zelensky has not so much changed Ukraine as amplified and intensified how they already saw themselves. Olga is a senior lecturer in politics at the University of Manchester. Henry Hale is a professor of political science and international affairs at George Washington University. Together, they are the authors of a new book called The Zelensky Effect. I wanted to talk to Olga and Henry because they explain why Ukraine has rallied around democracy. This conversation fills in many gaps about Zelensky, but also explains how he is representative of an even larger generation of Ukrainians. Ultimately, this conversation gives me the impression the Zelensky effect should survive long after Zelensky is gone from politics. Now, if you like this podcast, please tell your friends and neighbors over the holidays. This is an independent podcast, so I'm relying on the support of listeners like you. If you'd like to help financially, you can make a one-time donation at democracyparadox.com or a monthly contribution at Patreon. You can also email me at jkempf at democracyparadox.com with your comments, questions, or suggestions. But for now, this is my conversation with Olga Onuk and Henry Hale. Olga Onuk and Henry Hale, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So, Olya and Henry, I really enjoyed your recent book, The Zelensky Effect. Over the past year or so, I've been learning a lot more about Volodymyr Zelensky. I've been trying to play catch up because when I first learned that he won the presidency in Ukraine, 
I wasn't really sure how to make of it. I understood that he was a comic. I understood that he played a president on television. It seemed very surreal to me. And since Russia invaded Ukraine, I've been learning a lot more and been finding that he was very different than my initial just kind of gut reaction when I learned that he was president in this country. But I think your book really kind of helped me understand who he was in a way that even after everything that I've learned, I think that it helped fill a lot of puzzle pieces for me to help explain who he was and who Ukraine, like who that country really is as well. But I think that a lot of the story begins outside of Zelensky. It begins with the Ukrainian people. And I think to understand what's going on right now, we need to start with the revolution of dignity and what happened at the Maidan. So why don't we start there? Well, yeah, I know that you actually talked to a lot of people at the Maidan protests. Can you just kind of explain to us what the protest was like? What were the protesters like and what it was like to actually be there? So, I mean, this was a cross-cleavage, cross-class coalition in the streets. That was the most interesting thing about the Yevromaidan. And of course, it's also called by some folks, including the Ukrainian president himself, as the revolution of dignity. Although that term was never used until the very tail end in the aftermath of the protests. You know, you have this really odd, diverse cross-section of society on the Maidan. So you had a lot of elderly people who were retired and just had the time on their hands, quite frankly, to stay outside all day, not needing to go to work on those particular protest days. And then you had students obviously mobilizing as well. But what I found most interesting in the survey that we conducted of the protest on the Maidan was that there was a small portion, but nonetheless a significant portion of folks who never voted for the liberal Democrats, pro-European parties, and so forth. You had folks also who voted for Yanukovych, the president at the time, Viktor Yanukovych, in the 2010 elections. So that was, I think, the most interesting thing that occurred in 2013-14, is you had this diversity developing on the streets, but not only in Kiev, also across the whole country. And in fact, what most people don't talk about is that from that very first night, November 21st, you had incidents of protest in Odessa, in Kharkiv, and in Donetsk. Actually, a small group of people were there and ready to protest in Donetsk. And that first weekend also in Crimea and across other cities around the country. So it was a little bit different to previous protest events in that you really had participation across the regions and across a diverse cross-cleavage coalition of Ukrainian citizens. So, Henry, one of the things that I got from the book was that this was very much a generational shift in a lot of ways. The way that Ukrainians reacted to events in their country during the protests in Maidan. And you kind of link it and describe that generational shift, that new generation that was up and coming as the independence generation. Can you explain a little bit about how they differed from their parents in the previous generations? Well, the crucial difference, I think, is just that these were people who came of age with an independent Ukraine. There was always a Ukraine within the Soviet Union. So people within the USSR still had attachment to the idea of Ukraine. And one of the points that we make in the book is that 
many older generations, you know, including in eastern parts of Ukraine, had strong dissident traditions and strong attachments to Ukraine. We talk about how with the 1991 referendum on Ukrainian independence, majorities in every single region of Ukraine, including Crimea, voted for independence. So our argument is not that the independence generation so much is you know, somehow super special and super unique and having any you know, special attachment to Ukrainian identity, except to the extent that this was the generation who really an independent Ukraine was all they knew. They'll have some memory as children of Ukrainian independence, and that, for example, is a very important moment for them. But the independence generation is Zelensky's generation. And so part of the way that we organize the book and we try to tell the story of Ukraine is, first of all, through a telling of just the general political social history of Ukraine. But we tell the story partly through the experiences of this independence generation, of which Zelensky was an important part. And then we talk about Zelensky himself. But, you know, the independence generation is diverse. And another part that we talk about is how some became more active than others. Zelensky himself had a relatively low profile in the Euromaidan protests, for example, the mobilization there, whereas others were very active already back in the Orange Revolution, the rock star Vakarchuk, for example. So I think, you know, the independence generation is important and it forms the backbone of Ukraine's leadership now. And Zelensky's election largely reflects its rise. And it is a generation really very much steeped in an independent Ukraine. But we are not saying that it's the only generation that's attached to Ukraine, but it's important now because of its special experiences and the fact that it's in power. I found it interesting how you connected this rise of the independence generation to the Zelensky story and how the evolution of this generation coming into their own, if you will, as both people and as adults coincided with Zelensky's own rise in terms of his career, development of a person, figuring out who he was, and positioning himself to one day become president of Ukraine. In the book you write, Vladimir Zelensky is Ukrainian every person in a way few others could or crucially dared to be. And I feel like that sense of who he was started long before he entered politics officially. Did either of you ever see Zelensky in his role as a performer? Were you following him long before he actually entered politics formally? Well, obviously, I saw him on television sometimes. Um, this wasn't particularly my cup of tea, and it certainly wasn't the cup of tea of my friends, to be perfectly honest. And yet, when it became clear that not only is he a candidate, but that he is likely to win, because we were collecting data at the time, right? I did this really deep dive on the really strong urging of a wonderful, very well-known journalist, Natalia Gumanyuk. She's like, you're going to have to now look at every one of these concerts and you're going to have to look at Servant of the People because you're missing a piece of the story. And she was, my goodness, she was right. We revisited all of that with Henry over this period of time now in writing the book. But my goodness, was she right? Millions of Ukrainians were exposed to this political satire that he was so famous for. They were exposed to this repeatedly and consistently over time. 
So they had a different understanding than the smaller group of individuals in Ukraine that were not exposed to it or regularly watching it. How did his background and career really prepare him for the presidency? Because you actually make the case that his background as a comic, as a satirist, as an executive within media, effectively, actually gave him a good background for developing him as a leader, for understanding how to communicate with Ukrainians, to do a number of different things. It's a very unconventional background. It's a very unconventional career. How does the background and career before he enters politics actually create a real connection that allows him to transition into the presidency, not seamlessly, but in a way that actually helps him today? One of the things we try to show in the book is that his interest in politics is not something that was totally new. In fact, he talks about how originally he wanted to be a diplomat when he was a child, when he was a teenager. And actually, when he went to law school, studied international economics and law. And so he had this political interest, but clearly his entertainment career took off. And his entertainment career took off primarily through a Soviet-era phenomenon known as the Club of the Funny and Quick-Witted. There are different translations of it. But it's kind of a unique program. I'm stretched to try to think of any analog, certainly in the United States. Maybe there's some in the UK that all you can think about or other places. But one of the things that it does prioritize is the ability to communicate effectively. I mean, you have to sing and you have to dance and you tell jokes and you do skits and you do funny things, but you're also supposed to answer very quickly and wittily to pointed questions. And so I think these were all environments in which he really honed a lot of his skills. And then as his career took off, it also brought him into contact with a lot of people. I mean, he worked for six years in Moscow but then came back to Ukraine because he said he didn't really like it in Moscow. And then very important to our story is that uh, he became one of Ukraine's top media managers, uh, you know, general producer for the top-rated television network in Ukraine. And so this was a big political job. You know, anyone who knows anything about Ukrainian politics knows that that was very, very challenging. And he writes about wrestling with pressures coming from above to manipulate the news politically and his response basically was that, well, he kind of sidestepped that issue, delegated responsibility to somebody else for that, and thought that his own programming through humor would tell the real story at the same time that the regime at the time under Viktor Yanukovych was telling kind of a fake story about what was going on. And so he clearly kind of wrestled with these things. But our point is that these are big managerial political jobs. And his political commentary is very sharp. Critics will say, well, it's oversimplified. But of course, it's oversimplified. All political speech is oversimplified. The great communicators have a way of building things and boiling things down to their essence in a way that really resonates with ordinary people. So through all of this, we see him refining a certain message, especially after 2014, which hits on the themes that he continues to use today. And these include a sense of civic duty. The idea that Ukrainians need to take responsibility for their own lives, a European orientation for Ukraine, and a vision for Ukraine and Ukrainianness, what it means to be Ukrainian that doesn't hinge on religion or a particular ethnic background, who your parents were, where you were born, what language you speak, but it has to do with the attachment to Ukraine itself. And that's all you need. And 
a lot of his programming career is building up this message and reinforcing it. What struck me in the book was how professional his career really was. Because when we think of other actors who've entered politics, they oftentimes take decades before they rise to something like a presidency or even to become something like a governor. When we think of an American like Ronald Reagan, who transitioned from acting to politics, I mean, it took him decades before he ended up becoming president. Zelensky, on the other hand, was able to make that transition much quicker. But I think it was very important how he emphasized the fact that he had a much more professional career than many people had recognized or realized in terms of being somebody who was an executive within media. You had a story where there was a reporter who was talking to him at like 11 a.m. in the morning and had joked about the fact that they had likely woken him up and gotten him out of bed. And Zelensky was very startled by that because the reporter was acting as if he was just a media star, like he was a Matthew McConaughey or one of these actors who takes their life very unprofessionally and is just a wild adventurer. And Zelensky really thought of himself as someone who was an executive, somebody who was actually a businessman first, who was almost an actor second. How did that identity, how did that professional background really kind of shape and give him the tools that he needed to be able to transition into the presidency, Olya? Yes, that particular interview that you mentioned is in fact, I think it's annoyance when he hears this, oh, it must be early in the morning. There's a video of it. You can see Zelensky's annoyance. It's visible. Like he makes a joke about it. He's obviously a professional, but it's very clear. And then he corrects it. You know, I'm a producer. He was running a small media empire with his Gluia Quartal, with being a producer, first at Odin Plus Odin, then later at Inter. And quite frankly, even very early on when he joined the comedic troupe, he was noted to be a good organizer, coordinator, and manager and director, even at that stage. So he clearly had some natural instincts of leading, of managing, and of being to assemble a group of people that work well together. Now, did he do that in the same way when he became president? I think that's a different story. Different complications come into effect. But nonetheless, I think that ability to hone in on what might have been, quite frankly, natural skills that he had and develop that in his career. And I think both to Henry and I, we've talked about this. We are really surprised by how little there is, be it op-eds or serious research about his time as general producer in Inter and how infrequently that was mentioned. And there might be a component to this that his political opponents, both during the campaign and then in its aftermath, try to play that down, that he's just the joker. He's just the comedian without this degree, without these professional skills, without this experience. And I always think you could not stay in such serious positions of power, which Henry already explained they were, in fact, in Ukraine throughout this time, without being a very good manager of a variety of different people and elites and knowing who to speak to and when. His political potential wasn't completely newly recognized with the presidential campaign as early as 2014. He was invited by Petro Poroshenko, the president who was elected that year, to join his parliamentary bloc in a leading post on his party list in a run for parliament. And he reportedly declined that. And then, you know, there are other reports as well that people were urging him to run for parliament and different by-elections. So this was an idea that was out there among at least 
the inside political circles, like people who recognized that this was a serious political guy who could get votes. And then there's some indication we find that he actually was thinking along these lines for a while. So he clearly had some idea of his political potential, decided not to run at that point, and then later decided that 2019 was the year to do it. So it wasn't completely out of the blue. It wasn't an instant phenomenon, an instant transition from sort of just pure entertainment sector person to politics. But again, we don't know exactly when he decided to pursue the presidency. You know, some indication we find that he may have had this all along when planning his Servant of the People television program, the big famous one that we can all watch now on Netflix, which started airing in 2015, that this may have been at least an idea at the back of his head. Especially that third season, that third season to us in our analyses of everything we know about Zelensky, all the things we've read about him, really that third season then is replicated in his campaign. So that third season is very much seems to be his campaigning season. Well, let's get into that then. In the book, you actually write by playing a fictional president in a world made up by the candidate and a production team of his supporters who were also running his campaign. Zelensky was able to create scenarios designed to display precisely the kind of president he wanted people to think he would be. What kind of president did Zelensky want people to think that he would be? So I think he wanted to underscore that he would be a president that comes from the lived experience of ordinary citizens. So that character, Vasil Holoborodko, that after his divorce, is forced to live with his parents in a certain type of flat. They have certain economic difficulties. You know, they have to take out credits for very simple purchases, like microwaves and televisions and this sort of thing, that life was a little bit of a struggle. And also that he had a very deep understanding, not only of the struggles that ordinary citizens go through, And not only also their contribution to corruption networks or, you know, paying bribes to get things done, using personal ties. If your auntie has a certain job, then you might get that job where you're going to and so on. Not only those things, but also that deep and profound attachment to the Ukrainian state and to civic duty, regardless of the ethnic background or language Ukrainians speak. And for a broad cross-section of Ukrainians, that is the truth. They are attached to the state regardless of the language they speak, regardless of their ethnic background. For some, it's a very important thing, but for the broad majority, it's this, above all, that is then connected to their civic duty to defend their Ukrainian democracy. So that is the sort of thing that he, I think, front-loaded in the character of Holoborodko and then who he would be as president. Just one other thing I would mention is that even though the the show is often characterized as, well, this is like just purely a Russian-speaking show, in fact, both Ukrainian and Russian figure in it. I mean, his own language that he works in primarily as a virtual president in the show is uh, Russian, but he speaks Ukrainian fluently in the show and uses it at different times as well. And the different characters switch back and forth between Russian and Ukrainian. So it's also kind of in that way, creating a sense of what sort of president, you know, he might be where sort of the language that you use isn't so important. But what's most important is your loyalty and the duty you have before your country, uh, which is unquestionably uh, Ukraine. So both of you have emphasized that the show tried to 
transcend the divisions between Ukrainians and to try to lean into this sense of Ukrainian identity rather than ethnic or regional or even linguistic identities. I think that comes back to the main theme of the book, which is called the Zelensky effect. Why don't we just kind of explain this concept that you talk about? Olya, what is the Zelensky effect? So, right. So it's it's not a theme in the show. It's then a theme in all of the speeches that Zelensky gives as president. Zelensky's presidency is consistently producing this idea of we must stand united. The things that unite us are greater than the things that divide us. We all have a duty to act. We all have a duty to do things better. When he says we are all president, he means that all Ukrainians have the responsibility of doing the things that need to be done in order for Ukraine to be democratic, EU bound, in order for corruption to stop, right? He repeatedly talks about these things in his speeches as president. And obviously, he talks about these things today as we've been watching him, those of us who aren't in Ukraine and to international audiences watching the wartime speeches. The Zelensky effect is two things. On the one hand, it is this this civic-minded society where repeatedly ordinary citizens rise up collectively against authoritarian leaders or against individuals who are backsliding the country into authoritarianism. And they do so in the 90s, they do so in the 2000s, they do it in 2004 with the Orange Revolution, then 2013-14 with the Yevromaidan Revolution of Dignity. And they continue to do this. This is a society that is engaged. And this is a society that also welcomes different types of Ukrainianness to that political story over time. That increasingly people of different backgrounds come to take central roles in Ukrainian politics. And this is not something in this society that starts in 1991, as Henry and I write in the book. This is something that was present in Ukrainian society for quite some time. Dissidents who may or may not have been Ukrainian speakers or may or may not have been from different parts of the country also wrote treaties that were civic in a sense. They talked about Ukrainian civicness. And the most famous or one of the most famous of these examples is Ivan Zuba, who doesn't speak Ukrainian until his 20s and writes one of the most famous treaties against Russian chauvinism. He actually delivers this to the Communist Party, thinking that they will be pleased to hear his criticism. But he's just one example of many. So that's one side, that he is the product. Zelensky is the product of this society. In order to even start to try to understand Zelensky, you need to understand the society that he comes from. On the flip side, after 2019, The importance of his discourses, the importance of his message that does rally ordinary citizens. We talk about in the book that different types of ordinary Ukrainians rally around the civic idea of the state, around democracy, around European trajectory of Ukraine or whatnot at different points in time. Well, there were, of course, some people still in 2019 that did not see themselves part of this group of winners that were democracy European bound. And through his speeches, through his party's engagement, through his actions, some of these individuals also came to rally around these ideals. And so these people from the southeast of the country, who previously did not see themselves as part of this civic group, 
came to do so. They came to actually support democracy more. They came to support EU and NATO accession more. And the thing that correlates with this is having voted for Sluha Narodu, the president's party. And that's incredible. That is the Zelensky effect on the other side of the coin. So you can't understand him if you don't understand the society he comes from. But he also had this effect of rallying even more Ukrainians to that society ideal. So Jessica Pisano, a few months back, wrote an interesting article called How Zelensky Changed Ukraine in the Journal of Democracy. I'm not going to ask you about the essay specifically, but the title itself really speaks to me, the idea that Zelensky himself is changing Ukraine. But when you describe the Zelensky effect, it doesn't quite sound like Zelensky came in as this oversized personality that just forced Ukraine to change. Like you said, he's a product of his environment as much as he is somebody who's influencing his environment back. To what extent would you say then that Zelensky himself actually changed Ukraine? Okay, yeah. I mean, I think that under his presidency, you do see more and more people coming around to a Euro-Atlantic orientation to support for democracy. We see this sense of civic duty kind of consolidated in many ways. And uh, of course, you know, he has served as a great kind of unifier in many ways of many parts of Ukraine. And I think also one way in which he has had a big impact is that he has really kind of stood up for this civic vision of Ukraine in a way that other politicians haven't really done, at least not effectively, because previous politicians in Ukraine have tended, at least over the course of their presidency, and we argue sometimes for political motivations, tried to strike tones of identity division, thinking that, well, if things aren't going right with the battle with corruption or with the economy, that, well, we can at least salvage the votes of part of the country if we emphasize the importance of language or identity politics, or kind of on the other side of the political spectrum, that they kind of cast their lot with Russia. And so that's often how Ukraine is portrayed and understood in the West is kind of through these lenses as a kind of country torn between Russia and a more nationalist version of the West. And so, you know, our argument is that this has never actually been the case, that throughout the country you could find these two poles, but they're more kind of extreme poles in public opinion. And that, you know, in fact, there's a large middle ground uh, of people who have this primarily civic vision for Ukraine. So what he did was to articulate that in a very forceful way and bring that really boldly to center stage in Ukrainian politics. And that was a key reason why we argue in 2019, he won the biggest election victory that has been won in Ukrainian political history, the biggest margin of victory in the runoff, just huge victory over his opponent, Petro Poroshenko. And so I think that is one area where he's kind of transformed Ukraine is just kind of giving voice to and accentuating the importance of this civic vision of Ukraine in Ukrainian politics as a vision in its own right alongside these other narratives. But, you know, at the same time, we nuance that by saying, well, he didn't invent this. He didn't just kind of come up with it and convinced everybody of it. And he's this transformer of Ukraine. No, he tapped into it and amplified it through his leadership. So that's something that he was doing already through his entertainment work. And I think one reason why, I mean, a big reason why this just really took off and led to so much interest in his political candidacy 
And as president, he's continued to strike those same themes, often in surprising ways where people expected him to go the more traditional route. I mean, during his presidency, films have been banned that he's been in. Some people thought that, well, his own personal interest might lead him to uh, kind of you know, reverse those types of policies. But, you know, in fact, he's stuck with it, trying to de-emphasize these issues related to the cultural divides that so many politicians have resorted to in Ukraine uh, in the past, usually losing. So, you know, he has this genius that's been able to both reflect what a large majority position, I think, in Ukraine is, but also amplify it through his presidency. And now that's exactly the right note to hit in wartime. I just want to say that I don't think Zelensky has changed Ukraine. And I think I want to underscore what Henry already said. He amplified, uh, he mirrored what was already there in his time as an actor and comedian. He tried to show the realities and positions of ordinary Ukrainians as they saw them themselves. And then he then amplifies that and emphasizes that as a Ukrainian. Our colleague, Alexei Haran, Professor Haran in Ukraine, actually said that Zelensky by staying put in Kiev and not fleeing when uh, the tanks were rolling in and the bombs were falling. He was doing what any good Ukrainian would do. And I think in that he is right that Zelensky is much more of a product of the Ukraine that existed and his amplifying of it is a thing that we are seeing in his politics. But he was very brave and different, as Henry said, for choosing to do so. Uh, but I don't think he changed Ukraine. And I think many Ukrainians would find that really, really offensive, quite frankly. Uh, I think they're okay with taking credit for making Zelensky the man he is today. But I think they would be a little bit annoyed to hear that before him, they weren't of this might and bravery. I think they see themselves as the, the ones who made Zelensky, not the other way around. I definitely got that message from the book, too, that you felt that Zelensky didn't so much change Ukraine as, like you say, to amplify it, to represent who Ukrainians already were. But he has changed Ukrainian politics. I think that that is clear. And Zelensky did it through an unconventional path. I can't imagine the next president coming through the same exact path that Volodymyr Zelensky did through comedy, through media. It's going to be a different type of leader that follows him. How will Zelensky's example influence future Ukrainian leaders? Are they going to revert back to old forms, or does he mark a clear break and a change in Ukrainian politics going forward? It's a hard question to answer because the full-on invasion of February 24th just changes so much in Ukrainian politics. At the same time, uh, you know, our book shows that a lot of these debates will continue. There's overwhelming support for Zelensky now, and everybody's agreed at a minimum that he needs to be backed as the leader of Ukraine, right? Because first and foremost, the Russian aggression needs to be not just fended off, but defeated decisively. That said, there are a lot of people who are not happy that, I mean, by a lot, I mean, you know, roughly we estimate maybe you know, a quarter of the population, something like that. You know, we talk about most of them as part of a 25 percenter group, which is about the percentage of people that voted for Zelensky's opponent in the 2019 election, but who, you know, are not happy really that he's the leader. They don't think he's doing a great job. They think he made a lot of mistakes prior to February 24th. And 
their attitude is, well, we need to set aside our differences now to defeat Russia. But after the war, when time comes for rebuilding, we're a democracy and we're going to have it out and we'll have big political discussions. And so in the conclusion of the book, one of the things that we talk about is some concerns for where Ukrainian politics could go. Just because war traumatizes society, it can also provide great unity. And so our hope is that the unity that comes out of this, especially if it's a victorious unity, will wind up being something that Zelensky or whoever succeeds him, right? We have to remember Churchill was voted out by the British right after winning World War II, at least, you know, being prime minister then, right? So maybe we don't know what'll happen with Zelensky, but it could provide a great opportunity in this moment of victory to do a lot of the things that he's been calling on that Ukrainians want, you know, actually ridding the country of corruption. Now it's officially on track towards EU membership. So making a lot of the reforms that need to be made to consolidate that. But at the same time, kind of underneath, you know, we see in this 25 percenter rhetoric, even as they defer to Zelensky now, for the most part, a different vision for Ukraine, one that is more oriented towards ascribing a greater importance of particular language, particular religion to what Ukraine should be. And again, that doesn't mean it's complicated. It doesn't mean they necessarily think that the country is only for these people. But at a minimum, what they think is that Ukraine needs to solidly reinforce these elements, these cultural walls, as they see as kind of walls against potential Russian influence. And so that's a prevailing view. And actually, a lot of people now increasingly support that kind of process. Our colleague Vladimir Kulik has talked about a shedding of Russianness in Ukraine. And a lot of people see that as a walling off against Russia. And so I think one possibility is that, you know, what we'll see in the future in Ukraine would be a competition between people who see this more ethnocentric, ethnocultural vision of Ukraine as the future for Ukraine versus people who have this more civic vision of Ukraine, which is associated with Zelensky. And it could go in different directions, among other things. And we're also concerned about the possibility that wartime power, I mean, power corrupts, right? That's one of the great, you know, maxims of all time, right? And You know, right now, our assessment is that Zelensky has been a big proponent of democracy, but, you know, one hopes that, uh, you know, too much power, too much support doesn't go to his head and he starts, uh, you know, finding excuses not to leave the presidency. And before you know it, you know, you, you get threats to democracy. So I think we can understand Ukraine's political future without thinking about how the war is influencing it. And that's going to interact with Zelensky's message but also, you know, with these alternative visions of Ukraine. I mean, I I guess our hope would be that the political divisions that occur will be more normal ones, right, that characterize any democracy over policy views, parliamentary versus presidentialist regime, what economic reforms are needed. We can't predict what they're going to do. But based on our understanding and assessment and analyses over the last X number of years, over the last 30 years of Ukrainian independent political history, we can say what they shouldn't do. They shouldn't divide the country along ethno-linguistic lines or seek to polarize the country along these lines. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't support certain cultural rights or support and promote Ukrainian language in different ways, but it shouldn't come at the expense of minority languages or ethnic groups. Why? Because it's not really aligned with liberal democratic aims. And it's also not the thing that won over the median voter. And I think we will have a situation where some folks try to resort to these lines that they've used in the past 
in fact, that I think are getting escalated in the wartime context. But I think that would only polarize and divide Ukraine in some way that would not help it pass different policy. I think it's far more interesting when uh, his political opponents are criticizing Zelensky along other policy lines, such as media freedoms and under the current war context, how to manage the necessity to control the flow of information, but then still make sure to maintain independent media. Or those opponents who criticize how certain shadowy figures from past administrations are finding their way back into policy positions, individuals that may have been associated with Yushchenko's party of regions. So along policy lines, along the lines of past corrupt figures filtering it back in, if politicians criticize in the future should Zelensky run for these reasons, and that's where the battleground is, then we'll, I think, have a very interesting political debate in Ukraine and a truly democratic one. But if folks double down on identity politics, I doubt that that will breed positive change in Ukraine and certainly not what the context that Ukraine needs to help it rebuild after what is a hugely traumatizing, obviously tragic war for the whole of Ukraine. And quite frankly, the people at the front lines are not only the soldiers from all across Ukraine, but the front lines are those southeastern parts of the country. And I don't think any individual from those parts of the country, when we have peace, will be able to accept in any way someone telling them they're not good enough Ukrainians just because they speak Russian. And when they lived through the horrors that they lived through across the southeast, they might come to speaking Ukrainian on their own. But if a political candidate in a presidential race tries to highlight that they're not good enough, I cannot see that at all working to get their vote or, quite frankly, get the vote of those in Kiev or elsewhere. Well, Henry and Ilya, thank you so much for joining me today. Let me plug the book one more time. It's called The Zelensky Effect. It's a really great read. I think it really helps explain a lot about politics in Ukraine gives a lot of background on Zelensky himself, but really kind of helps explain what's going on in this country beyond just the conflict. Also, Olya has a recent article in the Journal of Democracy called Why Ukrainians Are Rallying Around Democracy, and that's definitely a must read. Thank you so much both for writing those, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Justin. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends, because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. 
Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.